Welcome back everyone for part two on heritage languages. This is New Narratives, dispatches from Minnesota that highlight the stories of Asian America. I'm your host, Anya Steinberg. I'm the storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, focused on supporting the Asian American Pacific Islander community in the Twin Cities area. Last time, I sat down with some multilingual folks and talked about their heritage languages. We learned what heritage languages mean to their speakers, discussed how people became multilingual, and briefly touched on how difficult it can be to be a non-native English speaker in the U.S. Today, we're going to jump right in, talking about why people lose their heritage languages, how that feels, and why language revitalization is so important. If you haven't listened to part one, you should check it out. Here's a refresher on our cast of characters for this show. Professor Satoko Suzuki teaches Japanese language and linguistics at McAllister College in St. Paul. She's a first-generation immigrant from Japan, but has lived in the U.S. for most of her adult life. Uh, my name is Satoko Suzuki. I speak Japanese and English. Nung Nguyen is a social studies teacher and refugee from Vietnam. Um, so I speak um, Vietnamese pretty fluently, um, for the most part, I would say. <laughs> Chanita Fingdara Potter is the founder, executive director, and creative director of the Southeast Asian Diaspora Project, which is a nonprofit that builds strong Southeast Asian communities through language revitalization and community organizing. Yeah, so I speak Lao, Thai, um, and that's it. Professor B. Vang Mua is the chair of the Hmong department at the U of M Twin Cities and spends most of her days teaching Hmong language to all kinds of students. Uh, you know, I speak, I'm fluent in Hmong, uh, white dialect, and uh, English. Um, I've taken, over the years, I've taken French, Spanish, and then right now I'm self-teaching Chinese, but I'm not fluent in, in any of those. And last but not least, Wan Vu is a second-generation Vietnamese-American who grew up in rural Minnesota, but now lives in the Twin Cities. Uh, my name is Wan Vu. I mean, I grew up speaking Vietnamese, like for the first couple of years of my life. And then I spoke, now I mostly, you know, I speak English. And one last thing, some exciting news. You'll be hearing new music in this episode. The music is by Takenobu, a Japanese American artist. I'm really pumped to feature him and his work. All right now, enough messing around. Let's jump right back in. We left off talking about people's experiences being non-native English speakers in America. Sometimes these experiences can lead to people being shamed or ostracized, which can affect if people retain their heritage language or not. I wanted to know a bit more about how people end up losing their heritage language, so I asked Chanita. Lots of people who engage with her organization, The Seed Project, are looking to reclaim their heritage language. She explained some reasons why they might have lost it in the first place. My parents were an exception, like a lot of Lao parents and other um, refugee or immigrant parents. Is, uh, sometimes you have to choose between, okay, I need you to learn this language for survival purposes. Or I really think that if you lose this language that we speak at home, um, you may never really know how I came and how we came and how our story um, matters, you know, and so let's say, for example, especially for poor or low income refugee and immigrant families, they live in rural areas where it's like there is no way that you 
<laughs> you know, would survive if you didn't speak English, you know, and, um, but, um, or that if you spoke another language, you were vilified or you were oppressed or, you, you know, other racist things that would happen to you. So not to say that it's like the parents' fault. It's not at all. I think sometimes we, we don't have a choice. The other thing is we don't have systems that support um, our young people to learn these languages, you know, so, um, you know, so I'm talking about the schools, the educational institutions, um, and we also lack resources to be able to do that. Chanita knows that it's difficult to raise your child bilingual because she also went through it. It's just so many factors, and I empathize with parents, even with my own children. Like, it's not easy for us to try to choose, or if we have to choose, and I think we shouldn't have to choose. And I experimented on my own eight-year-old daughter when she was younger. Uh, she was struggling in preschool through kindergarten um, because of the fact that she was trying to code switch, right? And what was beautiful, though, and the studies say this too, is that by the time they hit five or six years old, they actually automatically catch on. They know how to code switch. And... They, it actually helps them become better learners because they know, because their brain is wired to know how to navigate faster. You're like, you're like, you got like two game consoles and you're kind of like going back and forth and, you know, into like two different worlds. And so uh, a child, a preschooler's mindset is actually neuro, neurologically like so much more um, stronger because they've learned another language. Um, the first few years, there was a lot of pushback from teachers, not pushback in terms of learning another language, but pushback in terms of, hey, she needs to study more English. She needs to get better with her, her English speech. And I said, oh, she will. You know, she will. I think that's something that my parents didn't have a choice to say, okay, okay, I will. I'm sorry, you know. And so it's almost like shaming them that, that they didn't know English well enough or that I didn't. But I was resistant about it, so I would encourage parents to, to, to fight that urge to say that, you know, I mean, look at me, look at others who came to this country, we're, we're doing just fine, you know, mm-hmm. and so I think we, we tend to think that we need to just erase everything that has to do with our language and our identity in order to just survive, but, um, but it actually makes us smarter and it makes us more um, able to navigate like any challenge in any like system when they grow into adulthood that's when they realize what they've lost and 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 a lot of them actually take our classes because they're trying to reclaim that loss it's like a group grieving process you know when something dies from you or takes is taken from you and then you're you're trying to restore it you know it's it's like the it's one of the most beautiful but also very heartbreaking things to see Chanita expressed something that a lot of people I talked to spoke about, the dominating force of English. I know we've talked about this, but I can't stress how much of a big deal it is. English is like this superhuman force in the U.S. Without it, you can't access American society. The pressure refugee and immigrant parents are under to make their kids fluent in English is immense, because unfortunately, English is a thick glass ceiling to success in America. Professor Vang Mua sees English isolating her community. It's hard to carve out a space for Hmong in an English world. I think uh, the one thing that's hard is there's just not enough spaces um, in mainstream society to, uh, you know, utilize Hmong um, because everything is just English, right? 
And so if the Hmong community does not create that space, then, then, then it's non-existent. Hmong kids are living in an English-dominated world, and sometimes it's just easier to succumb to that. Professor Vang Mua told me about some of the challenges parents face in trying to communicate to their kids when they themselves aren't fluent in English. Very often people will just go the easy route, which is utilizing English. And when we do things like this, even parents who might not be as fluent in English, they would prefer to speak uh, Hmong English to, so we call that like Monglish, right, <laughs> to their children um, versus speaking fluent Hmong. For them, it's faster to communicate that way with their children because their children speak, you know, fluent English. They end up doing that, which is actually a disservice to our children because then they hear what we call, quote unquote, broken English, which I don't believe that there's such a thing as broken English. I just call it Hmong English because parents speak English in Hmong grammar. And so it sounds, it comes off sounding like broken English, but it's it's Hmong grammar on English. So uh, what happens there is then then younger Hmong kids grow up speaking um, non-fluent English because they hear English in that way. When you're just trying to tell your kid to do some chores, you're not always thinking about the consequences of what you're saying. You're just thinking about how tired you are from work and how you like them to help out around the house and what you're going to say if they complain. Kids are already using English all the time, so it can seem like too much effort for parents to speak only Hmong every day with their kids. But the consequences of small decisions like that are profound. Professor Suzuki knows how easy it is to forget pieces of your heritage language. Even if her career centers around teaching and using her language, she still struggles to hold on to some aspects of Japanese. Okay, so Japanese has three uh, orthographic systems. The two are uh, like alphabets. They, they just it represent sounds. But the third one is... Um, ideograms, which is characters. So uh, Japanese uses Chinese characters or sometimes simplified Chinese characters. And they are vast. You need at least 2,000 to read, you know, newspaper and stuff. So, and, and I can read them, but I'm not writing them by hand. Hardly, right? Because I don't need to. And I'm typing everything. And when you're using computer, it just comes up for you, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm losing the knowledge of uh, that writing. Um, and so when I'm teaching fourth year Japanese, which is a high level Japanese, and I sometimes are writing on the whiteboard and I'm like, oh, how do you write that character? I can't remember, you know? So that's kind of um, not so good. <laughs> but that's something you have to really kind of keep doing it. And um, I don't, I should probably be more intentional. There was once a time when Juan was fluent in Vietnamese. For her, Losing Vietnamese was kind of a conscious choice, but also a product of circumstance. Yeah, I think it was like a slow process. I remember like there are specific moments where, you know, my mom would always say things like, you know, back in Vietnam, you would not speak to your parents like this. You cannot speak to me like this. Uh, and so I was just like, well, we're not in Vietnam anymore. And like definitely really hating that part of my identity because it felt really oppressive in that way um, and really hurtful. It definitely was like an association of speaking Vietnamese with like all these things I hated. Just being lazy, probably like it's easier for me to respond in English. And so like, I kind of wonder if my family had been around more Vietnamese community, there would have been more encouragement for that because, you know, after a while we did not celebrate like a lot of Vietnamese holidays. We did we stopped celebrating like Vietnamese New Year, um, 
there's like death days when somebody dies, you honor them on the day that they died. And, and like, I don't ever remember doing that growing up. So, um, yeah, it's hard to keep culture alive. So yeah, I think I mourn the loss of that. If I had grown up in, you know, places with more Vietnamese people or Asian people, I would have had that. So what does it feel like when you lose your heritage language, especially when you can remember a time when you knew it? Juan talked to me about how it feels to visit her family in Vietnam now that she can't speak Vietnamese. So my fa- most of my family is still back in Vietnam, like my extended family. So when we go back, I definitely have to rely on them to translate um, and to speak. And I think that, that w- that's what feels like crappy is because I... You know, I want to speak to my family members and I don't want the interactions to be transactional. There's definitely a lot of guilt there when I can't speak to members of my family. Because when I went back when I was I went back when I was like 11 years old and I was still fluent then, especially we spent like three weeks there. And so I was like, you know, completely talking with all of my relatives. And um, like I know we used to have phone conversations like a couple of years after that and I would still talk to them. But um, yeah, just when I got older, replying back in English. And there was, there's, you know, definitely like, you know, complicated relationships with family members. And so you kind of associate, you know, like American assimilation and all of that, you know, baggage. So I just like stopped speaking in Vietnamese to my, my folks. Even if she can no longer speak the language, Juan still sees it as a huge part of her identity. I mean, it's absolutely connected to my identity. Like when I go home, and I like my parents speak to me. There's just something about it that feels like it's like a feeling. It's like a feeling of like nostalgia and loss and this like deep connection with my folks when they start speaking in Vietnamese. And that fact that I just like in high school, you know, as my second language, I chose French <laughs> because my dad was like, well, I grew up learning French. And I was like, cool, you can help me learn this language, right? Um, and it's like, you know, there's the French occupation of Vietnam. So it's like, it's like literally an extension of the colonization. So I didn't get a chance to learn Vietnamese, right, when I was older. And, it, and again, like, I shouldn't have to take a second language if my, like, language at home would have been embraced. Nong still speaks Vietnamese, but there are times when she can't remember words or spellings. She told me a bit about what that's like. Um, already right now, when I, like, can't think of a word in Vietnamese to talk to my parents or to like speak to my siblings it's uh it hurts me because i like i actually take it personally and i i don't i feel like i've never reflected on this before but it's like why can't i think of this word in vietnamese like i part of me part of me feel like it's being erased because i couldn't think of like that specific Mm. word um because i then i can't communicate with my family like fully or even when I'm like trying to explain certain processes and whatnot um, in Vietnamese, I just like lose like the grammar and also like the the word, and I, it just it just makes me feel very disconnected, um, and it makes me feel like I've lost a part of myself, and it's, it makes me feel like it's my fault that that happened, like you know, because I learned English and all these things now, so I can't like go back to Vietnamese. That feeling of shame before of not being able to speak English is now translate to like the feeling of shame of not being able to like remember certain words or be able to say certain things in Vietnamese.
imagine that sinking feeling when you're in the middle of a math test and the symbols on the page look absolutely foreign to you, or you can't quite recall how all the numbers are supposed to work together. Now imagine that feeling, but it's not just about your algebra grade. The stakes are so much higher. It's wrapped up in your family history, the home country you left for the US. Without knowing this language, you won't be able to speak with your family in the same way again. Practically speaking, not knowing your heritage language can bring up a lot of challenges. Here's Juan speaking about how it affects her relationships with family members. You know, my dad will speak to me, but he, he'll speak to me in English because um, he, he knows that like, I don't have full comprehension of Vietnamese, um, but his English is also not good. Like my, I know my dad is like a lot more funny when he's talking to his friends in Vietnamese, right? He's like cracking jokes and stuff like that. Um, Juan wants to relearn Vietnamese to strengthen relationships with her family members today. She feels like there are parts of her family that she can't understand without knowing Vietnamese. Hopefully it'll help me strengthen relationships, like my relationship with my dad. Um, and especially, again, like relationships with my extended relatives, too. And especially, like, there's so much history, too, right? I understand, like, a lot of my family's history, but I wish I could be talking to my relatives and, like, okay, like, mom says, like, this happened to her. Like, what was going on for you all, right? And then my dad also wants to, he's like, I really want to capture my, like, my story and like what happened to me when I came to the States or what it was like to escape or what it was like living under a communist Vietnam. And like, he's like, will you write that for me? And I'm like, I don't want to like, I don't really want to transcribe for you, but, um, but if you could write it in Vietnamese and then I can like transcribe in English, like that would obviously be easier. Cause then, then it would be in your own words too. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's like history too, as an aspect of it. Or I would love to go back and I'm just like curious, like to do more like genealogy research. If I could go back to Vietnam and look at like how far like generations, because I know that like my mom's side of the family came from like northern Vietnam. But like beyond that generation, like beyond that where, you know, mm -hmm. Juan can no longer understand Vietnamese at the level she needs to be able to sift through her family histories. The reasons for why her family came to the U.S., the lives they used to lead in Vietnam, all of these family secrets are hidden in a language she doesn't know. This is why Professor Vang Mua taught Hmong to her kids. She wanted them to understand where they came from. My passion with learning Hmong and my understand, understanding with any, any heritage language and the loss of a heritage language is you lose all of that. So you lose that core part of yourself. So I imagine like my, my own children, I have five kids, and so my own children, if they no longer speak their heritage language, then they become a, a face in the mass of Asian faces, right? Mm. Um, and so then how do you define yourselves that, that you are Hmong besides utilizing English to explain that, oh, here's where my family was from, or, you know, these are the locations, the places, faces, these are the traditions that we practiced. But you've lost so much more, things that can only be passed down through the language, spoken in the language, right? Because... Uh, no other language can ever host uh, the, the true depth or meaning of what you practice and what what the history of your people, because there are things that cannot be said or spoken in another language. And so sometimes when you're explaining something, you, can, you can't always utilize English. You have to utilize the Hmong term to really capture that key piece of your culture or your people. You know, um, the loss of a, a heritage language is the loss of a people's culture, traditions, history, like the true core of it anyhow. 
Like Professor Bang Mua, Chinita believes that there are some things that just can't be translated. She sees challenges in keeping a community's history alive if people don't know the language. A lot of the stories that we collect in our work, um, we have a young person who is bilingual, works with an elder usually, they capture it in a document the stories. And usually young folks are actually, um, the ones who are bilingual, the difference between them and like anybody else who is a, who, who may be documenting who doesn't know the language is that the way in which the elder may respond in English is different than how they respond in their own language, right? In their own native to uh, tongue, because the meaning of it is actually completely different. They also may not be able to say certain things that you think you're understanding, you know? So, so there's always some sort of um, some gap or missing translation in, in those instances, you know, that people don't realize. And so unless you know that language, um, the, the, you're always going to come from um, a lens of where everything that may be translated into English or everything that may not be in language is actually just another uh, way in which white people have told us how we need to understand it, right? And, and right now I'm just in a space where I'm trying to find ways to decolonize our way of working because um, I think too often we think that best practices is, is actually a, another way of seeing white practices. And so I think that that's what's been um, very transformative about language justice work that people don't realize. What Chanita is saying is that whenever you have to translate something from Lao to English, there's so much lost in that translation. As soon as it is transformed from Lao to English, the cultural significance attached to Lao words can be lost. And even more so, when elders are trying to tell their stories in English, they might tell it a completely different way because the emotions they're trying to express belong in Lao. When cultural knowledge and stories can't be held and preserved in Lao, there's so much that is left behind. All of this leads us to why language revitalization is so important for creating strong communities and strong connections to yourself. Nung spoke to me about why people should relearn or learn their heritage language if they don't know it. Yeah, um, I think language revitalization is really important. Um, I also feel like sometimes folks never had a chance or a choice whether or not they can speak Vietnamese or they can speak English. It's important to revitalize it so that just people who once they grow up and they want to be able to speak that language or to recover what was taken away from them at a younger age. Like it's really important for folks to be able to do that. And for folks who feel like they've lost their language um, by choice or whatever, <laughs> to also have the opportunity to relearn um, something at one point in their life. When she can't remember something in Vietnamese, it motivates her to keep working to maintain it. I think it just gives me like, a sense of defeat, <laughs> like, um, but also like initially it's a sense of defeat, but then after that, I'm like, okay, it's more important than ever that I need to maintain this language and for my, for myself and then encourage my nieces and nephew to do the same, even when their parents say like, you know, you should just learn English because I think it's, it's really important that they know because if they don't, then like the generation after them will lose this language and like lose a part of themselves so i just i try my best to speak to them in vietnamese as well um and yeah i 
just trying my best to insert Vietnamese whenever I can. So it's a sense of defeat at first, but it's also motivation to make sure that um, the language is continues throughout our lineage, but also in the Vietnamese community. Um, yeah. Language revitalization is one of the central projects at Chinita's organization, The Seed Project. She believes in using language revitalization to build stronger Southeast Asian communities in Minnesota. When I do social justice work um, or organize and mobilize my communities, um, I use it as a tool. It's an armor. It's a way in which I know how to communicate with my elders, know how to speak in a way that um, helps me understand my connections and relationship to my communities. And so that to me is much more a much more deeply meaningful way of how the power of language is crucial um, to this work. And especially during a time like this where we're in crisis, we're in chaos, all of our rights and things are being threatened. And one of the ways in which we can resist is through language justice work. You know, our most popular program is our language program. So it's eight weeks intensive in Hmong, Khmer, Lao, Vietnamese. Um, and I see language in this way as an entry point for how we talk and how we frame issues that we care about, and also how we actually grow relationships and cultivate relationships with our community members. A lot of times people think, well, I'm not going to use it. Why should I learn it? But I think what they are not seeing in the optics of things is that this is how you, language is actually the best way that you know how a community thrives, how what a community pulses. from like how you say, hey, come eat, to hello, are you well, are all ways in which it actually helps build relationships and in which people actually learn um, about the culture, you know? Um, so, so words and phrases and um, stories and folk tales even from with, with, that are in language are actually all part of how uh, people in our communities actually learn how um, a community um, works. The Seed Project's language classes are more than just a chance for people to learn a new language, but it's also a chance to connect with your community and build relationships centered around language and culture. Community is an important piece of anyone's journey to relearn their heritage language. Juan spoke to me about some Vietnamese friends she knows in California who have built a really strong community around keeping their knowledge of Vietnamese alive. There's so much more Vietnamese people out there and a lot of like younger Vietnamese people who are trying to like hold on to culture, but knowing that like culture is not stagnant, right? Like culture can advance and it still advances today in Vietnam. Um, but language is like an identity that we want to, they want to hold on to. So they'll have like meals where people just come and they'll just speak only in Vietnamese and then like, they'll support people in learning that. Right. Yeah. I just had these like beautiful moments with a friend of mine when I was out there, we like, just like sat down on the couch and like they took out a book we were like reading the book together and they were like supporting me and learning it it just so deeply connects you to your identity yeah and it hits like this emotional part of you so everyone should learn Viet. who wants to learn Viet? language revitalization while making asian american communities stronger also helps decenter english in our lives which is an important mode of resistance janita spoke to me about how her work at the seed project is informed by this idea um i started seed their time when there weren't enough spaces where 
collective experiences and the histories and the education around Southeast Asian narratives and stories were actually centered. That's kind of, you know, where I started my roots is um, feeling that there was not a space that was decolonized, non-Western, and centered around the communities that I identify with and I um, and that I work with that actually used our cultural assets and respected our knowledge, our ancestral knowledge and our community knowledge enough to do this work. So that became a light bulb moment in me in which I said, boy, I've, I've worked too long in this nonprofit industrial complex in this westernized way of thinking and breathing and living that we've forgotten how to be ourselves in terms of our cultural identities and the communities we actually come from and so then I, the idea around um, just let's create space for southeast asians to actually come together learn a language the language led through the process of the, the developing the curriculum the content in the language classes people actually learn how to talk about like they'll do like certain, for example, certain activities are around role, role playing on certain social justice themes so that people are reclaiming and restoring a language um, that they may not know at the same time using in a very, very applicable, realistic way. They all create a project that at the end of the eight weeks, intensive eight weeks, um, goes back to the community. So then they get to also see how language actually becomes an asset and how important it is for them to use um, language to, to advocate for and with communities, right? Juan actually thinks that we need to decenter English not only to build stronger Asian American communities, but just stronger communities in general. People reclaiming their identity, it's like a political act, right? Yeah, I'm like, I'm incredibly excited to do it. You know, it's like all the angst of like, of being upset that like, you never got to like learn this language that's a part of you. And we know the histories of that, even with indigenous people and how like their culture is taken away from them purposely. I wish I knew Spanish. I wish I knew like Arabic or like Somali, you know, in my neighborhood, we have like a lot of different folks who speak language, different languages. And when I'm door knocking or when I have to like translate the flyers, because we're trying to get our neighbors to like come together and get to know each other. Mm -hmm. Like I can't Mm -hmm. communicate with them. Right. And I'm like, damn it, why didn't I pick like Spanish as my language? Because I want to be able to like reach out to those folks, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And make sure they feel like they're part of the community. When like, again, English is the dominant language, people don't feel like I can't be a part of that community, whether it's like cultural barriers or language, especially like language barriers. There's a lot of hope to be found in language revitalization work, especially in the process of teaching heritage languages. While there is evidence that Hmong has been a written language before, Hmong has been primarily a language passed down orally. The written Hmong language people use today was created in the 1950s, which means it's pretty new. There are fears in the Hmong community that Hmong is going to become a dying language because fewer people are fluent in it. However, Professor Vang Mua doesn't see it that way. She thinks the language is growing and changing to fit the times. It's such a strange or weird dynamic that's happening. In a sense, it is fading more because fewer and fewer people are utilizing it. There are fewer and fewer people um, truly fluent in the language. But then you also have more and more people studying it as a language versus just everyday speaking of it. Because, for example, like my parents, who are very well-versed, very fluent in Hmong, everyday Hmong, they probably couldn't explain to me the construction of a Hmong sentence, right? 
for the meaning of life. What's a verb? What's a noun? Which ones are our prepositions? Why do we say certain things the way we say? Why are certain expressions expressed in that way, right? And so even though uh, there are fewer people fluent in it and speaking it, there are more people studying it now. And so there's sort of a different revitalization of the language. And so I'm not so much afraid of the language dying off or that we're going to completely completely lose it. I always you know, talk to my students about that. The language is definitely changing. And the change can be very positive or it can become negative. Right. It could become just sort of like an almost extinct language that we just study for the sake of learning linguistics. Uh, the language itself um, has changed over many generations. And that's that's OK. What's not OK is to completely uh, lose it by not caring about it, not utilizing it, not studying it. So it really depends on, on how our current generation of Hmong speakers um, are going to take it you know, moving forward. I think Professor Vang Mua brought up a really interesting point. Languages aren't static, they're always changing. There's a reason we say yeet and lit instead of thine and doth. It's because we don't live in the 16th century anymore. Even if there are terms that don't yet exist in some heritage languages, that doesn't mean they can't be created. Professor Vang Mua sees a lot of ways that Hmong has changed with the Hmong diaspora. As Hmong people have spread around the globe, the language has morphed. Here in the U.S., we've picked up terms like basi for pop. Right. And Basie comes from Pepsi. And so when we say Basie, we don't mean the brand Pepsi. We mean like any pop. So you have to say like, oh, the Basie called Mountain Dew. Like, I need you to grab me some Basie, but I want the Mountain Dew brand. Right. Or like, uh, you know, we'll say Gabe uh, for carpet, for example. So loan words have have definitely changed um, how we communicate vocabularies that we use. But what's also amazing about that, too, is it also helps us track back the journeys of of where we've gone to. Right. Uh, where, what, which areas we've experienced all the way tracking here to the U.S. and then, of course, out into, like, all the many different countries that Hmong people have spread out to, like France, uh, Argentina, Germany, Australia, whatnot. You know, and then and then just over the years, a good chunk of Hmong vocabularies have, we don't have enough opportunities to utilize it because, for example, we have rich vocabularies when it deals with the arts, when it deals with deeper cultural topics, when it deals with agriculture. And here in the U.S., we don't farm how we used to. Uh, for example, Hmong, we have like three or four different terminologies just for rice itself, right? Because it's a staple of, of Hmong community. And I've heard a number of Hmong youth utilize one word for rice, whether it's cooked or uncooked or, you know, any forms of rice, they'll use one word, you know, and it'll come off sounding funny to the elders, but they don't correct you know, those who make the mistake, they just laugh it off. So vocabularies get dropped, vocabularies disappear because you just don't have that context to speak about anymore. Or like in English, we have the term like there, over there, right? Here, there, over there. In Hmong, we've got like, gosh, I wanna, uh, don't quote me on this, but for like seven or eight, nine words, that means here, there, over there. And it's because we lived in many mountainous regions. And so we would have a word that says there, but it means like up and over there, because it's up and over the mountain or the hill, right? And a word that means there, meaning like horizontal over there in that, at that surface. And another word that means there means like out there far. But in English, there is just there. And then we describe with out there, up there, over there, right? So we have like one word there, quote unquote. But in Hmong, we've got a number of words that means there. But then you live in regions like here in the US and we don't get to utilize all those vocabs. So regions that you live in, no experiences, the lack of having those cultural practices anymore or those cultural 
spaces and places anymore will influence how language changes and how we no longer utilize certain things. When Professor Vang Mua finds a concept or a word that doesn't yet exist in Hmong, she encourages her students not to see it as a limitation, but as an opportunity. They start to feel like, oh, in Hmong we don't have enough vocabularies because that's why we always have to keep switching to just utilizing English. But what they don't understand is you've got all these brand new things that we never had before in our language. Like you've got technology, you've got, we're talking about sciences, we're talking about legal terminologies, medical terminologies that in Hmong we never looked at before or we never discussed about before. It never was important before or we never discovered it or we just didn't have it, it was non-existent. Uh, like in Hmong, we don't have a word for the number zero because we just don't talk about non-existent quantities, right? <laughs> and so I always, when I teach my students, I'm like, be proud of the fact that we don't talk about non-existent quantities. Don't, you know, don't feel bad that we don't have that word. Instead, understand why we didn't have that word and that that made sense to us at that time. But now if we need it, well, you guys are the current generation. Hey, make one up, right? <laughs> That's how words are. That's where how words came. It wasn't given from the Lord Almighty above. Humans created it through social context, social dynamics, right? Social experiences with one another, comprehension of the world around us, and then how we communicate that with each other. very much you have this huge field that you can fill with new words that is of your generation's creations because these are new things to you right and so that's open that's it's an invite uh, to explore that and that's a wrap for this episode of new narratives special thanks to those featured in today's story professor b vang mua professor satoko suzuki sierra takushi nung win wan vu and chanita fingdara potter music featured in this episode is by takenobu this episode was written, edited, and produced by your host, Anya Steinberg, storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project. More information about AAOP can be found at our website, aaopmn.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>